test one, two. One, two, three. Welcome to Myth, Ritual, and Symbolism. I'm Don Panconian. This is Tuesday, September 13th. Despite the fact that I promised you these on Mondays, um, I'm really good at making long podcasts, it turns out. And so I'm going to try this one more time. When I get to 50, 50 minutes, if I get to 50 minutes, I'm going to hit stop say goodbye thank you for being with me and i promise everything i do not get to tonight i will get to sometime this semester i have so many things to say to you here um but i want to do things too i want to play a game called is this a myth or not i'm going to read from you read for you a selection of texts and let you think about whether or not they're myths i also want to play a game called what is a ritual anyways um every time i talk through that it's a mess of ideas about ritual I'm going to do that one more time here for you. And then I want to get to your problem posing from last week. You guys asked fantastic questions about myth, ritual, magic, and quote-unquote primitivism. And I want to be sure to start to unpack those at the very least. So without further ado, let's get into the game. Is this a myth or not? I'm going to read to you four different texts. And I would like you to ask yourself. Um, let me find the right selection. Here we go. This is it. All right. Selection one. This is... Do I tell you this? I'm not even going to tell you what it is. I'm just going to start reading. I will tell you just after. Um, and I'm only reading parts, fragments of these. I'm not reading them in their entirety. You're supposed to ask yourself as you listen, is this a myth or not? Whenever you want to stop to think about that, you can hit pause. Also, while you're deciding, is this a myth or not? Think about why. What are the factors? What are the components? What are the characteristics that are making you say, yes, this is a myth or no, this is not a myth? Ready? Go. In the beginning, two female human beings were born these two children were born underground at a place called Shipapu. As they grew up, they began to be aware of each other. There was no light and they could only feel each other. Being in the dark, they grew slowly. After they had grown considerably, a spirit, whom they afterward called Sichtinako, spoke to them, and they found that it would give them nourishment. After they had grown large enough to think for themselves, they spoke to the spirit when it had come to them one day and asked it to make itself known to them and to say whether it was male or female. But it replied only that it was not allowed to meet with them. They then asked why they were living in the dark without knowing each other by name. But the spirit answered that they were under the earth. They were to be patient in waiting until everything was ready for them to go up into the light. So they waited a long time, and as they grew, they learned their language from Sichtinako. When all was ready, they found a present from Sichtinako, two baskets of seeds, and little images of all the different animals there were to be in the world. The spirit said they were sent by their father. They asked who was meant by their father, and Sichtinako replied that his name was Uchd Siti, and that he wished them to take their baskets out into the light when the time came. 
Tsitsch Tinako instructed them, quote, You will find the seeds of four kinds of pine trees in your baskets. You are to plant these seeds and will use the trees to get up into the light. End quote. All right, dot, dot, dot. Is that a myth? You're missing some key information um, that would help you decide. Um, but I want you to think through it just solely with the text for a moment. If you want longer than a moment, hit pause now. If not, let me tell you what this is titled and then you can rethink whether you think this is a myth or not. This is titled The Akoma Creation Myth. All right, see why I didn't read you the title up front? Um, does that change your thinking? This is a sacred narrative that belongs to the Akoma peoples of Western, just west of Albuquerque in New Mexico. Um, most of the Acoma people, 6,000 tribal members live there right now in what is called Acoma Pueblo. This creation myth predates colonization and um, most of the Acoma peoples today are Catholic. They were forced to convert to Roman Catholicism by Spanish colonizers in the 16th century and now um, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about their beliefs. Um, their beliefs are complex, but but often what you find is a kind of a a hybridization of these pre-colonial mythologies, sacred narratives, and also then Christian beliefs and practices. Let me now go to example number two. Whatever you answered is fine. Um, you're going to see that increasingly. As I continue through these, I wanted to open with a text that I thought typified what most people are most likely to say, yes, this is a myth too. So that was your example. Um, that is a pre-colonial sacred narrative belonging to the Akoma peoples. Now this is text number two. This is, and I will now from here on out, give you context, tell you what I'm reading before I start reading, so you can use that information to inform your deciding. This is The Odyssey by Homer. I'm going to read the first two paragraphs of book one. This was written down in 800 BCE. Again, my question is, is this a myth or not? Maybe you already have an answer. That's fine. Um, again, my follow-up questions are why. Why is this a myth or why is this not a myth? Tell me, O muse, of that ingenious hero who traveled far and wide after he had sacked the famous town of Troy. Many cities did he visit, and many were the nations with whose manners and customs he was acquainted. Moreover, he suffered much by sea while trying to save his own life and bring his men safely home. But do what he might, he could not save his men, for they perished through their own sheer folly in eating the cattle of the sun god Hyperion. So the god prevented them from ever reaching home. Tell me too about all these things, O daughter of Jove, from whatsoever source you may know them. So now all who escaped death in battle or by shipwreck had got safely home except Ulysses, and he, though he was longing to return to his wife and country, was detained by the goddess Calypso, who had got him into a large cave and wanted to marry him. 
But as years went by, there came a time when the gods settled that he should go back to Ithaca. Even then, however, when he was among his own people, his troubles were not yet over. Nevertheless, all the gods had now begun to pity him except Neptune, who still persecuted him without ceasing and would not let him get home. Dot, dot, dot. Is that a myth? Why or why not? Hit pause if you want to think longer about this. Otherwise, I'm going to continue. I'm going to tell you that my answer is... It's complicated. This is an epic poem. It is an epic poem that was written down purportedly by Homer. There's a lot of debate about who Homer was, what Homer was, um, when exactly this was written down. What most people believe is that this was, this comes from oral tradition. This was a narrative that was told from one person to another that transcended generations and that Homer then put into text. And so here's where this question, is this a myth, becomes messy. We don't usually think of myths as having authors and this text is understood to have an author. Um, but then if what that author is doing is writing down oral tradition, suddenly the category starts to fall away. He's not exactly authoring it. Or, or what happens if Homer is borrowing from ancient Greek mythology, but slightly reworking or organizing the stories or narratives? Is it still myth? Is it still a collection? Is this work, um, and also Iliad, the Iliad, which is another collection, another epic poem and collection of um, mythic narratives, is that mythology. I will say that what this work and the Iliad have backing them up are departments all over the world, classics departments, um, or classical mythology departments, in which scholars dedicate themselves to studying these works, and so that... Um, suggests that yes, these are understood to be myths and interpreted as myths in the present. My own working definition of myth is a myth is a sacred narrative that transcends generations. Um, absolutely, the stories here transcend generations. Are they sacred narratives or were they always studied as literature? Um, Probably at some point in time pre being written down by Homer, maybe also after having been written down by Homer, but before there were classics departments, for example, filled with scholars studying these, probably in and around 800 BCE when Homer wrote this, um, there were, I suspect that there were believers um, in the sacred narratives, in the gods and goddesses, the pantheon that is represented in this book. Whether they were believers in the narratives as Homer has told them here or not, I do not know. So again, my answer here is it's complicated. Most people will call this myth, mythology today, uh, but it's messier than you might suspect. All right, example three. Again, I'm going to give you context. This is from the Bible. This is Genesis 6-9 through not quite 9-17. I'm just going to read you the opening through 9-22. Ready? Is this a myth or not? And then if yes, why? If no, why not? This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. 
Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, and for all the people on earth had corrupted their word. Ugh, that was terribly read. Let me do that one more time. God saw how, saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Dot, dot, dot. All right, is that a myth? If yes, why? If no, why not? Hit pause if you want to think about this for a while. I'm going to tell you that I and most of the anthropologists I know, I'm going to go way out on a limb and say all of the anthropologists I know, that I know of, will consider this a myth. And this is where I want to stop and I want to draw attention to my working definition of myth, which is a very common working definition of myth today in 2022. It is not Spence's working definition, for example, that 101-year-old work of anthropology that we read for week two. Um, he opens right by defining myth, defining mythology, defining folklore, defining folktale. My definition of myth is not his definition of myth, but what my mythology, my, perdón, my definition of myth does is it doesn't suggest at any point that the narrative that I am trying to categorize as myth or not is a lie. It doesn't suggest that it belongs to a primitive people. It doesn't suggest that it is some sort of pre-scientific, prototypic type of thinking. Um, what my definition does is it says, look, this is a narrative that is sacred to someone or someones um, that in by my definition, the people who find this narrative sacred can still be alive today or they can no longer be alive. That doesn't matter. The point is that there are people who, who find or found this narrative sacred. And then part two, this is a narrative that has transcended generations. When I apply that definition, whether I'm applying it to a narrative from the Bible or a narrative that belongs to the Acoma peoples, what I'm doing is I'm saying equally, um, I'm not judging you. If I say go deep hang out with a bunch of 
Christians in Albuquerque or the Acoma peoples an hour and a half to the west of Albuquerque. In either case, I deep hang out and I'm really invested in wanting to understand how people understand and how, what they believe and I want to share their practices and I want to participate as, as best or, or as much as they're willing to allow me to do. And when I come back, if what I'm doing is writing a book, which is what academics often do, I'm not coming back and saying, hey, hey, readers, let me tell you about all these crazy practices and let me tell you about these loopy, non-rational narratives that belong to these people, whether I'm talking about a community of Christians in Albuquerque or a community of Acoma peoples in Acoma Pueblo, right? In all cases, I'm coming back and I'm saying, these are the narratives that are sacred to these people. And the clause transcends generations. What it does is it circumscribes the category. Um, it keeps kind of flash in the pan trend from becoming a part of what we study. Although I shouldn't say that because Roland Barthes actually in a book called Mythologies did a lot of studying of advertisements, for example, as myth. And we'll talk about that later. Let's say that in my working definition in general, I include the transcends generation because what it does is it gives me a category of narratives that isn't just pop and in the moment. And I'm not studying the Nike swoosh as myth, for example, although mm, that's transcendent generations by now, bad example. I'm not studying some sort of this year obsession trend because because then I think I would be studying everything. But then again, let me stop and say Roland Barthes did exactly what I'm saying I don't do and is famous for doing it and wrote this awesome book studying French culture, um, critiquing really pop culture in particular in France and French identity and all sorts of other things, understandings of self in France, by, by calling all of the things around him that he saw in his daily life, that he heard in his daily life on the radio, for example, calling them myths. So, all right. Um, there's me telling you what I think and then telling you that what I think might be wrong. In any case, my working definition works for me because it allows me to construct a category of narratives that, that have two things in common. They're sacred to somebody or were sacred to somebody. And also they have longevity. They're, they're a particular type of story. Um, Barthes was probably right too, but I, I need to, I need a smaller category. All right, there. Um, now you can see why these keep getting so long. I'm going to give you one more example. I'm going to make this one a little bit faster. This is from a blog called Success Consciousness. The Power of Positive Thinking Can Improve Your Life is the title. Remember, we are asking, is this a myth or not? And then, if this is a myth, why? If this is not a myth, why not? Richard's Negative Attitude Richard applied for a new job, though he didn't believe he would get it. He had low self-esteem and considered himself a failure and unworthy of success. He had a negative attitude about himself and anticipated failure. This made him believe that the other applicants were better qualified than him. On the day of the interview, Richard woke up late in the morning. While dressing up, he discovered that the shirt he planned to wear was dirty. He looked for another shirt, but all his shirts needed ironing. 
As it was already too late, he went out wearing a wrinkled shirt and without eating breakfast. During the interview, Richard was stressed. Nervous and hungry, his mind and attention were distracted, and this made it difficult for him to focus on the interview. Richard's behavior made a bad impression, and consequently, he materialized his fear and did not get the job. Part 2. Jim's Positive Mindset The second story is about Jim, who applied for the same job. He had a good measure of self-esteem and was confident that he was going to get the job. During the week preceding the interview, Jim often visualized himself making a good impression and getting the job. He also repeated positive affirmations to that effect. Jim did not want to leave anything for the last moment, and therefore he prepared the clothes he was going to wear in the evening before the interview. He also went to sleep a little earlier than usual. Jim woke up early in the morning. Therefore, he had ample time to eat breakfast and leave home on time. This enabled him to arrive to the interview before the scheduled hour, refreshed and calm. Jim stayed calm and confident during the interview, made a good impression, and got the job. There's a final line. These stories show that attitude, behavior, and approach play a major part in life. Um, is this a myth? If so, why? If not, why not? Hit pause if you want to think about it. I'm going to tell you that my answer is yes, this is a myth. Um, maybe not exactly with Richard and Jim. Um, the author says up front, and I didn't tell you this, the following stories illustrate examples of how the power of positive thinking works. But I am going to suggest to you that quote-unquote, the power of positive thinking is myth. It is um, maybe what we have here, what the author has written out is a kind of an explicit narrative. Here, let me tell you a story, and the story just gives you an example of how positive, power, positive thinking works. Um, but the idea of positive thinking, the power of positive thinking, is also... Um, even when we don't have the exact narrative, we have in our head a sense of a narrative, right? That things unfold in a certain way, that actors act in a certain way, and therefore they arrive at certain ends. And so I'm going to suggest to you that that's an implicit myth. And I'm going to suggest to you too that the power of positive thinking is something that is in the present sacred to many people. You will see when you read Ira Chernus for this week, when we think about myth and identity, Chernus writes really well and um, accessibly and also complexly, interestingly, about the making of myth in America. And he will say to you explicitly that myth in America in particular is often grounded in truths. Um, grounded in, in even scientific findings, grounded in um, history, that, that myth often works best when it is some sort of blend of truth and I'm not going to say non-truth, I'm going to say unprovable fact or observation or account. And so myths, parts of myths can be proven and parts of myths cannot be proven, that's a good way to say that. Um, myth often is, is most enduring when it is composed that way or, or when its components <laughs> reflect that. That's what I want to say. Um, and I, so what I want to say to you is this 
the power of positive thinking, there are a lot of scientific studies that suggest that in fact thinking positively has benefits for individuals. Um, it does, um, for example, better position you to go give a good interview when you walk in with confidence, when you walk in with a strong sense of yourself and who you are and what you want to be and when your shirts are ironed and all of these things, right? Um, so I'm not, again, just like in the case of the story of Noah, I'm not saying this is a myth, therefore it is a lie. Uh, I am saying that there are these sacred narratives in contemporary United States. The second part of my working definition transcends generations. That makes this a little bit more complicated. I've decided that this is a kind of a implicit myth that has transcended transcended at least three generations. My parents were reading books in the 60s about this, um, and I suspect that my parents are your grandparents' age or so. So you've got grandparents who were reading this in the 60s and earlier, um, and then parents who were reading this, if your parents, let's say, were parenting in, let's say were kids in the, oh gosh, I don't know, growing up in the 80s, is that, are they, or, or 70s or 90s, I don't know where your parents are in time. Nope, that's too late. You guys are growing up in the 2000s. You guys, I'm all over the place on the when did generations stop and start. Um, but I suspect that your parents too can point to um, books that they were reading in their early adulthood that argued things like the importance of psychosomatic benefits and the importance of, of this straight up thinking positively. And so I'm going to tell you that this has transcended enough generations for me to think that I can call it myth. And now I want to say one more thing, and this is why this is here. It's important, and you're going to see this again in Chernos for this coming week, week three, it's important to understand that myths do things, right? Myths function. Um, we'll talk, we'll spend a couple of weeks talking explicitly about functionalist understandings of myths. In, in that case, myths function to stabilize society. They answer questions, they teach, they allow knowledge and understandings and beliefs to transcend generations. They're a way that one generation passes on information to a next generation. Um, and not just any information, but information that is bound up with understanding of self and, and, and community and the world. And so myths do things. And they do a lot of good do things, but they also do things that are insidious. And I'm going to say to you that even while I want you to think positively and trust the power of positive thinking, I'm going to suggest to you that the sacred narrative around the power of positive thinking is insidious. It suggests to all that getting the job requires thinking positively. If you got the job, you did it. You thought positively. If you didn't get the job, you didn't do it. You, you, you got up too late. You didn't have the right self-esteem. It's all on you. And the fact of the matter is there are all sorts of reasons why someone might get a job and someone else might not get a job. And a whole lot of those reasons are structural. They have to do with structural injustice, institutional orders of society, hierarchies, social hierarchies, power hierarchies, who has access to what ty types of capital, social, cultural, financial. Um, there's so much else going on. What And so again, I think this reaffirms for me my conviction that this is 
a myth, a sacred narrative. And again, I don't want to. Um, I, I want to be respectful for those of you who are super into mindfulness and super into positive thinking. And I do think that's really important and even a survival skill in 2022. But while doing that, we simultaneously have to be wary that these things circulate, not just like quiet little tips, pieces of advice in self-help books that we stumble upon for ourselves, but they circulate en masse and they're shared en masse and, and they are taught across generation to people and, and they can leave people thinking, you know what, I didn't get the job and I keep not getting the job and that must be on me. I'm just not thinking positively enough. I'm just not. I mean, that also, this makes me think immediately of a book by Barbara Aaron Wright from I think 2010 called Bright Sided, which is all about um, the American sort of cultural fascination or, or fixation with happiness and on being happy and um, simultaneously it makes me think of something Hanif Abdurraqib wrote once that said white people when you ask them how are you they always say good when you ask a black person how are you they always say all right and all right is about as good as you can hope to be as a black person in America today um, yeah all of this is to say Aaron Wright, Hanif Abdurraqib these, the focus on positive thinking, I don't know if I needed to go down that track, you guys. Um, they, they distract from what's real. Um, there are so many reasons that so many people in the U.S. right now should not feel happy. And it has to do with racism, and it has to do with sexism, and it has to do with classism, and it has to do with heterosexism, and it has to do with all of these things that you guys know and encounter um, every day, right? The structural injustices that, that do not let us live equally and freely and justly and all of these things. And so when we start to have these narratives like the power of positive thinking, also when we start to have these narratives like pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, you can do it, you just have to work hard and you have to buckle down and you can get whatever you want and this is the land of the free and um, maybe I should stop because Ira Chernos is going to do a whole lot of this for us this week. All of this is to say that that's myth, sacred narrative at its most insidious, um, at its most dangerous. And again, we're going to move into thinking about myth and language and power. And so, yeah, really, let me stop because I've got so many other things I want to say to you guys while we're here. Let's move on to ritual. Dare we? Can we? I thought I would start with Max asked a question that helps me get into my own thinking. So the game is, what is a ritual anyways? It's not really a game. Um, it's just a chance, chance to stop and think. Max, you asked in pro your problem posing for week two, what comes to your mind when you first think of ritual? And then you write out, one of the old like sacrifices or like a little personal ritual, like making a routine of things. I really like that you wrote that out in speech. Um, and what you've done is you've given us these kinds of two distinct poles of ritual. And what I have done in the past with students, and so I thought I would play it hypothetically with you here, I might even pose it. Let's say if you run out of things to do, things to talk about with the people around you this week, this could be an interesting experiment. I, in the past, have had students go out for one week and ask people around them, is blank a ritual? 
And so what I would give you as a prompt, I'm gonna give you two. The first is, is brushing your teeth a ritual? And think about your own answer. You can hit pause if you wanna think really hard about this. Maybe an answer pops up into your head immediately. And then um, I the, the experiment, if you choose to accept it, would be just to spend this week when you run out of things to talk about in life, in general, in your daily life, asking people around you, ask your family, ask your friends, ask your colleagues, ask your professors, ask the people you bump into in the hallway or you sit next to on the bus or work with, etc. Is brushing your teeth a myth? And see what they say. Um, if we could all write down all of the answers we got and come back together live, we could look across people's answers. Let's say everybody asked 20 people and there are 18 of you in here, plus Eric and me, that's 20. We'd have 400 responses. And we could look across those 400 responses to is brushing your teeth a ritual? We'd need to follow up. I forgot this part, this is important. This is where the real data is. We don't really care if people think brushing one's teeth as a ritual or not. What we care about is how they explain their answer. So we would follow up with why or why not. And that would get people explaining to us what they understand a ritual to include or not include. And by looking across those 400 explanations, we'd be able to arrive at a maybe pretty good sense of how people think about ritual in Minnesota in, I'm in Argentina, so that already kind of messes up our sample set, wherever you guys are. Um, and then also I think interesting is I suspect what we would see in that data set is a little bit of the lingering problem with ritual, which is captured really, really beautifully um, and painfully maybe in the work by Lutz and Collins, which we wrote we're gonna spend some time with Lutz and Collins because a whole lot of you asked questions. But let me go now to something that Lutz and Collins in writing about National Geographic wrote about myth, right? They're picking apart the imagery in National Geographic. And about ritual, they write explicitly, here I'm quoting, this is from page 90, um, yes. No single feature renders the third world exotic more forcefully then the magazines focus on ritual. Nearly one-fifth of all photographs with non-Westerners in them feature people engaged in or preparing for ritual. Ritual being defined in the narrow sense of sacred and formally organized group behavior. These pictures are among the most dramatic in the magazine, often chosen by the editors to spread across two pages in brilliant polychrome. A director in the photography department explained that all photographers naturally gravitate to ritual events because color and action make for intrinsically more interesting material. The non-Westerner Westerner comes to be portrayed as a ritual performer, embedded in tradition and living in a sacred, some would say superstitious, world." End quote. Um, they also note that those images of these non-Western bodies in ritual they are stereotypes, they perpetuate stereotypes of the non-Westerner as irrational. They also perpetuate stereotypes of the non-Westerner as timeless. And so what I suspect is coming back to our experiment where we to go out and ask all of the people around us, is brushing one's teeth a ritual? I suspect that in people's definitions, we'd start to get a sense that 
Um, even accidentally and even in 2022, some people would accidentally say, no, you know, it's too quotidian. Ritual needs to be about the otherworldly and ritual needs to be about, and whether or not people are telling us explicitly, you know, ritual isn't really ours. I don't think ritual exists in the US. I'm not sure that we would get that. Um, I suspect we'd get thinking more like in fitting Max, can I use you as an, an example? In fitting with Max's thinking, the sort of awareness that there are two ways of thinking about ritual. Um, ritual as drinking coffee with your roommate in the morning every day at this certain time before you get ready and go. Or ritual as, um, as exotic other performance in a faraway space. And place, right? Um, but, but I think what we would get is, is some sort of acknowledgement that ritual has been and, and is often associated with that exotic capital O other. Uh, that's what I want to say. Um, and all right, and then what I thought in part two of that, see how this is like a game, but it's not really a game. What is a ritual anyway? Part two would be to start asking people around you is dancing a ritual? And what you'll get, I suspect, is, and I think maybe your first reaction to this too would be, what do you mean? What kind of dancing in what context? Where, done by whom, etc. right? You need details to make that decision. And if you say to the people you ask this question to, I don't know, it's just something that our professor sent us off to do and, and really like, she totally messed up because she didn't give us any context or directions. If you use, you blame me and say, look, this is a terrible question, but it is what it is. You'll get, I suspect, people answering you in ways that start to not only typologize dance, pick apart dance and, and start to organize dance into a multiplicity of categories. There's this kind of dance and this kind of dance and this kind of dance and this kind of dance. But once again, just like with the toothbrushing question, you will also get a sense of how people understand ritual to be. What is ritual, what is not ritual. Um, so there, that, I wish we could do this live and all together, but we can't, so let's go forth. I, what I wanna say to you in general about ritual without taking up too much time is most, I don't know anybody personally, for example, that uses ritual as a concept in their research. And I know a whole lot of anthropologists and I know historians and I know sociologists and um, I can think of one example, that's a lie. Heather Levi studies um, Lucha Libre in Mexico and has used Victor Turner's definition of ritual. But in passing, maybe just to say like, look, I know this literature, I've read this. Um, Nobody would ever say, Heather Levi studies ritual. Heather Levi studies luchadores and the lucha libre, the, I, if you know what that is, it's the kind of um, Mexican performative wrestling in Mexico City. And so there, again, I'm gonna say again, nobody I know studies ritual. And that's because ritual has this tremendously problematic past. It has become impossible to separate ritual from all of the ways in which scientists have misstudied it in the past. They've kind of locked it into this place where even if we don't want to picture ritual as something that has been used to further exoticize and further other non-Westerners, it does that. And so 
the fix, how do you get around that, is you just don't use the word anymore. If you do use the word in 2010, there was a special edition of Cultural Anthropology. That's one of the most important anthropology journals um, coming out of the US today and, and for many decades. And there was a special edition dedicated to ritual. And it was really interesting because um, the person that organized the edition found five scholars who write and use ritual in their thinking as a concept. So I say, I don't know anybody, but there are five at least in the world that do continue to think about and use ritual. And um, what they did was they included a work by each of those individuals. And then they also interviewed each individual and said, why are you using ritual? What does ritual allow you to do? And what they wanted to do, the organizer of this edition wanted to do, was to say, I think, to anthropologists everywhere, look, if you're really careful with this concept, if you define it up front and you say, this is what I'm doing with ritual and it has nothing to do with what people did in the past, you can still use ritual and you might even find it useful. You might find that it helps you better understand um, Carnival in... Brazil, for example, was one of the examples someone was using. Somebody else was using ritual to study radio and the evolution of, of radio practice. And so the people that were using ritual were using it in contexts that were really unlikely. And I think that's not, mm, that's not true of Carnaval, but of the radio, for example. I think it's easier to borrow these concepts back into the kinds of research where you wouldn't expect to find them because then there, there isn't a population, for example, in thinking about ritual and, or pardon, thinking about radio and revolution and thinking about the evolution of radio technology, there wasn't a population to be othered, to be exoticized, to be fetishized. Um, a lot of you asked questions about fetishization, so we'll get there too. Um, there wasn't a population that could be marginalized by accident, by being associated with this word ritual, if that makes sense. Now, there. That's what is a ritual anyways. The answer is, it's a mess with a really bad history and most scholars today avoid it. That's the short answer. I could have just given you that and saved you a lot of time, but now for the rest of your life you have all of my messy anecdotes to, to, um, to add color to your thinking about ritual. I'm not saying you can't use ritual. I do want to say here, this is a good place to say, Bella, you asked last week, and I didn't get to this question, why are mythology and performance so intimately connected? And then I'm going to replace performance with ritual. And I'm going to tell all of you something else that has gone out of style is that connection. I think maybe in general, outside of academia, people are likely to, or sometimes do associate myth and ritual. Um, Part of the problem is all of these college classes. I fought really hard, you should know, for a lot of years to get ritual out of the title of this course. I wanted this to be myth and symbolism. I ended up getting symbolism into the title. So this is no longer titled myth and ritual. And that's a good enough fix. It's all right. I still have fun figuring out what to tell you guys about ritual and when and how to get sources on ritual into this course. Um, but this course was titled Myth Ritual by an anthropologist who was on faculty at MCAD for decades. I think a great anthropologist loved by students, but definitely of her time. Um, and she retired somewhere in the middle of the 90s. And I will suggest to you that somewhere at the end of the 1980s, in anthropology, scholars weren't only at the fringes were they associating, were they 
association is the wrong word, were they linking myth to ritual? And so for many decades, um, what you read by Spence is a kind of early defense of comparativist mythology and comparativists uh, were among the, the subpopulation of scholars who were quick to say, you know, um, and I'm using the wrong language. I'm being too casual with you and it's making me inaccurate. They weren't quick to say anything. Um, but when I think of comparativist mythologists, I also start to think of the population of scholars, subpopulation of scholars who were saying, look, myth gives meaning to ritual. It gives the storyline to ritual and ritual in turn is the embodiment of myth. It, it gives the enactment, it, it gives the, the imagery um, back to myth. And those two work together to solidify the sacred, the sacred narratives, sacred objects, the use of symbols, all of these things um, are made still more sacred because of this back and forth between myth and ritual. That was trendy and, and let's say especially in style maybe in um, Joseph Campbell's part of the problem too, especially in style in the 1960s and 70s and all the way up until I'm going to say about 1989. I'm trying to think, I have a book called The Myth Ritual School which was a series of people that really strongly believed in the interdependence is the right word of myth and ritual. And I think they published that book in 1989 and then I think that um, science moved on if you will. And the reason science moves on is not just trend, it's because in fact you can find so many cases of myths that, that do not correspond to rituals. You can also find rituals that do not give body to myths. And so to suggest that these are interdependent and interconnected um, is, is misleading. There, there are examples in which they work together and there are also lots of examples in which they don't. Maybe that's, again, see how good I get at being succinct once I've already talked through my mess of thoughts? There. Um, let me... And so, Bella, what I wanted to say to you is they are... Mythology and performance and mythology and ritual are intimately connected maybe in our sort of like pop outside of academia thinking and that's not accidental. It also has a lot to do with who the most widely read academics were or scholars were writing for the masses. Um, that I, Joseph Campbell again. Joseph Campbell wrote really awesome. I don't want to do this here because it's going to take up all the rest of our time. No, we're going to talk about Joseph Campbell later. For those of you who do read or have read Joseph Campbell, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, for example, Joseph Campbell is really great for screenwriting. He's really great for thinking about how you might want to structure a narrative or design characters or what elements you want to put into your narrative. For, for writers of fiction, I think Joseph Campbell can be tremendously useful. For science, Joseph Campbell was a, a many decades um, super present in the US in particular, but also globally anthropologist who did very deductive science. He found in myths across space and time overlap and said to the world, look, we are all one, look, most likely all of our myths, mythologies evolved out of probably a singular mythology. He has a book called, or I don't know if he has a book titled this, he has a key concept that is the monomyth. All of that thinking doesn't hold up 
under real scrutiny. It sounds good, it makes us feel united. Um, it does what the National Geographic photos do. It's feel good, it's look at even the absurd other, even the timeless other has something in common with us and, and we have our modern religion and they have their primitive um, sacred narratives and even if we're too smart to use that language, those thoughts, those biases linger and what Joseph Campbell allowed us to do was to feel at one with with everyone, with the world. Um, his books, I still think I tried to listen to a series of interviews he did with Bill Moyer on, I don't even know what it is, PBS, I think. Um, those all live on YouTube if you run out of things to watch. I can't watch them, I can't listen to them. Um, that's my bias, I shouldn't say that to you. I'm not being a very smart academic when I say that to you. Um, all right, there, I went down the, the Joseph Campbell rabbit hole anyways. I do wanna say that out loud because a lot of what people know about mythology when um, they aren't in science of mythology as you are here is what Joseph Campbell wrote. And it turns out to be, again, deductive, not inductive. Good science is always inductive. You start with the data, you start with the pieces, the findings, and then you work your way up to conclusions and patterns if you can get there and sometimes you can't. Um, what Joseph Campbell did was start out with the patterns. He wanted to find universality. He wanted to find interconnection. He wanted to find um, overlap. And what he did then was interpret the data in a way that allowed him to see what he sought. That's, again, not science, it's self-fulfilling prophecy. And now I will stop. Let me go straight to your questions because here we are. I've got about 10 minutes left. Let me glance at the timer on this. Oh my god, you guys. I'm at minute 49. I thought I had 10 minutes left. I don't. Um, what do I want to do really quickly with your questions? I want to say to you that Spence, we read Spence not because this is the most important thing I can do. Ryan asked me a question that is clarification and it's really important. And that question was, we're going to go just over 50 minutes, you guys here. Can you explain the purpose behind, nope, um, not quite that one. This is important too. Can you explain the purpose behind the requirement of using this sacred text website? Because some cultures, including mine, don't have any written records for myths and storytelling. And now, yes, I want to tell you this. And this is also my reason for introducing you to Spence, that 101-year-old right on myth and religion and, and Spence who needed to define all of his terms so explicitly and Spence who needed to talk over and over and over again about myth as belonging to primitives. Um, I want you to see into these earliest written texts because it was these earliest written texts that were analyzed by theorists and that inform even into the present um, contemporary thinking about myths, about what they do and about how they do. And since so much of the time in this class, we're going to be thinking about what myths do and how they do, especially because we're going to be trying to decide if we can or cannot use them ourselves to do something to to build a better world with stories, for example. Um, I want us to see the, the, the kind of dirty underpinnings of so much of the theory that informs our understandings today. And so um, something else, Ryan, that you wrote 
that is related is how can we talk about primitivism in art, and I'm going to add also in science, without perpetuating racism, classism, ethnocentrism, sexism, heterosexism um, of the makers of that art, also of the writers of science. I That was me reworking your question, and so I hope that I held true to the meaning, but this is something too we need to ask while here. I think that another kind of a scholar could say, I don't want to teach that really old science because obviously it's problematic, students are going to see immediately how terribly racist, how tremendously ethnocentric it was, um, but I want to introduce you to that earliest anthropology in particular because we've got to be able to get past it. Um, let me find here, Hallie, you wrote really nicely, as we were asked to consider it is clear that even in the present or near present, the media that we consume is still perpetuating the same racist, sexist, ethnocentric, classist, and racist tropes slash messages that were prevalent over a century ago. The National Geographic article, so you guys saw in Spence, you also saw it in Lutz and Collins' analysis of the National Geographic photos from 1993 is still using the same language. So, all right, you have these two renowned American anthropologists who do this, the reading National Geographic, that was a chapter you read from an entire book. That's a book that's still taught today widely. It's been taught since it came out in 1993. Um, and yet National Geographic doesn't seem to have radically changed their ways, right? Don't you think you could drop that book off at the National Geographic and it would go viral and everyone would say, holy shit, we've got to get a handle on this? Um, that's not what happened. And so back to you, Hallie. Hallie I'm going to go back to it. the National Geographic article from 1993 is still using the same language. So National Geographic, despite the article being from 1993, let's say, is still using the same language, different, strange, inexplicable, exotic, other. And yet, despite these descriptors, these people and these cultures are framed as being beautiful and attractive. Um, they are made a spectacle for Western enjoyment. And... Then you ask an interesting question, how is this attractiveness meant to appeal to our humanness? And I don't know how to answer that. I wish I did. Um, it's something that we can continue to think about. And it's something also that I think we want to think about if we are going to decide whether or not we can use sacred narratives to construct um, the way I keep falling down this hole where I want to tell you again how I imagine where I think we might land and maybe I don't need to do that yet. Um, but if we are going to be working with sacred narratives and if we are going to be thinking with sacred narratives which are not our own in some cases, even just for smaller assignments throughout this class, but ultimately for this world building project at the end where we're imagining a future and imagining being able to socialize future generations into new forms of knowledge, um, using these sacred narratives, for example, in a way that improves the world. If all of this is going on, we need to be aware of things like, um, are what we are, are we in fact trying to trick people? Are we trying to do maybe what um, Joseph Campbell did in selling people this sense that we are all unified and we are all one and so we can blend these stories together and arrive at some sort of beautiful pan multiculturalism, right? This is what, this was chronic in the 1990s and you guys don't know this because I think most, if not all of you were too little, but the 1990s felt really good to live in because it felt like 
we were multicultural and that was amazing. And you know what happened? Um, everything blew up afterwards because all of that was, was a shroud. It was a way of unseeing all of the problems that continued to plague the 90s, that had plagued the 80s, that had plagued um, decades before that, and that continued to plague us in the present. And so, man, do I sound worked up? I, um, and so that, Hallie, I'm jumping a little bit um, through things. Ariana, you also had some really good comments about in being able to interact with myths and other cultures in general. Are we able to do this without inherently relating to them or, or reading into them lessons that are unique to ourselves that are somehow sort of of our own cultural understandings? Can we get past our own cultural understandings um, to interact with the myths and cultures of others? And can we do this without unintentionally or intentionally othering and exoticizing, right? It's really easy to consume the other, for example, to consume the exotic. How do we make sure that we not, are not that consumer? Um, Lutz and Collins, as Ibriana, you write, 9091, pages 9091, write about the spectacle in viewing other cultures' rituals. And while reading myth is, is less spectacle, it is absolutely consumptive. Man, I'm jumping fast. Here's what I didn't get to. Um, I didn't get to some really great questions you guys have about gender, but that's okay because we're going to do, we're gonna talk about witches and we're gonna talk about monsters if I can make them fit. And so we'll do gender then. Um, and we didn't talk about magic versus religion, religion and magic, which I did want to do. Let me, give me just a few more minutes. Um, Shawnee, you ask, isn't one person's religion another person's magic? And I'm sorry, I reworded that. So you asked something similar to that and then I shortened it. Isn't one person's religion another person's magic? And what I think, uh, part of why I taught Griffin in this course, and those of you who are really interested in magic here are all citing Griffin, so thank you for that, is because I, um, as a scientist, have not spent a lot of time trying to separate out magic from religion. Are they the same? Are they not? Is magic a part of religion? Um, Joseph, you ask, why are people trying to separate magic from religion instead of just combining these two supernatural events? Um, and also, one of you pushed back, Kaylee, you turned my question back on me and said, what are your thoughts on magic and religion? Here, you're gonna get them. Um, my thoughts are, I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about magic and religion. I've spent a lot of time thinking about religion and, and how it functions, and I've spent a lot of time um, thinking about magic as sacred belief and sometimes sacred practice, often sacred practice, um, not in which I participate, uh, although I guess if I think hard about that, maybe I can find some exceptions. But that's really been the, the extent of my thinking and why I'm teaching Griffin here this semester is because I just found this article. I just started reading the New York Review of Books, looking for fresh new content for you guys. And I was really thrilled with that article because it's a book review. So Griffin is giving us his evaluation of the book, but the idea, the argument that the difference between magic and religion is that magic is coercive and religion is prayer, religion is asking, so to simplify that. this So this argument really belongs to the author that Griffin is um, 
reviewing. And the author is, is basing this on these ancient documents which show spells and show, I also am teaching this document because I wanted you to see firsthand. Like these are, you can see spells that are coming out of these primary sources. You can even try to use them if you want to try to use them. Um, I, I've never thought to distinguish between magic and religion. And I thought it was really exciting to think about someone trying to do this. And I thought it was really interesting to think. I don't think that it would hold up. I think, I always try to think, can I think of an exception? And even Griffin points out and, and says, look, the author himself said, look, there are cases in which you see magic that suddenly becomes in service to a God. Like I'm going to do this spell. And then in this, via this spell, I'm going to ask God to ultimately get me here. Um, but again, let me clarify what that, that distinction that, that came out of that reading by Griffin was. The distinction is magic is or could be coercive. So magic is you cast a spell, you perform a ritual, and you make something happen that you want to happen, and that thing is somehow linked to the otherworldly. It, it's not just empirical. It's not... Um, I bowl a ball down an alley and knock a bunch of pins over. In fact, what you do is, is something that is this worldly impossible. And um, in contrast, religion, according to the findings of the author Griffin is reviewing, is it's prayer, it's asking God for the outcome that you want. So instead of mixing the right chemicals and performing in the right way and making something happen directly, you're going to the gods and you're saying, this is what I need, can you do this for me, etc. Right? So think um, demand or, or do for oneself versus ask from another. That was the distinction. Uh, Kaylee, I don't know if that's dissatisfying, but it's something I'm excited to continue to think about even while I am already at the very beginning certain that I can think of lots of ways in which or reasons in which that distinction doesn't hold up. All right. Um, and one more thing I want to comment on because I'm here and I'm already over time. Eli, you thought this was super interesting. I'm going to read you. Since I knew the ways of Christianity borrowed mythology from pagan traditions, but I wasn't really aware of the ways pagan traditions took on things from Christianity. Um, and then you wanted more information on that. I thought I'd start by saying, the first thing I did when you wrote this is I went to the just Google and I Googled pagan and I wanted to see what came up. And the very first definition that comes up for pagan is noun, a person holding religious beliefs other than those of the main world religions. I think that's really powerful because suddenly it means a pagan is anybody that believes anything that isn't. Um, and then we have to decide what count as the main world religions, right? But suddenly pagan includes a whole lot of people. It can definitely include non-believers. It can definitely believe people who are done. But perdón, it can definitely include non-believers. It can definitely include people who um, are identify as agnostic, for example. Um, pagan doesn't mean polytheistic. Pagan doesn't mean primitive. Pagan doesn't mean other things that I think that in the past we have associated with that word. Again, language evolves. We're going to talk about language in this class. Um, but so what that made me think to say to you, Eli, is I think part of why um, we're not thinking, you know, well, okay, even though we know Christianity borrowed from 
pagan and even pre-Christian traditions, we, f we forget that pagan um, religions, and let's call pagan everything that isn't one of the main world religions, also evolve and are always evolving. And this gives me a really great place to end because it gives me an excuse to say to you, um, part of the problem with ritual and, and its association, part of the problem with, with primitivism in general is that the primitive was assumed to be stuck in the past. And so in early anthropology, just like in early art, you saw this also in the Gauguin example. I'm sorry for not getting more explicitly to Gauguin, but also I'm not an art historian, so you guys are getting that elsewhere. I don't feel that guilty. Um, these constructs by artists, by scientists of the primitive exotic other um, situated that quote-unquote primitive exotic other as unchanging, as existing somehow outside of time. And all of this, what we're reading, what we saw, this is all post-Darwin, solidly post-Darwin, right? 60, 70 years post-Darwin, um, both Spence and um, Gauguin. And so you've got this, you've got this sort of uneven application of Darwinian thinking so that in, in the sciences, um, in early anthropology, humans were divided into three categories. They could be moderns, so the scientists doing the research identified as moderns, and Ariana, for you who cited and, and used um, ethnocentrism in your thinking, this is totally ethnocentric thinking. They identified themselves as moderns and they identified right, the people around them with whom they hung out as moderns. There was a kind of in-between category. They were the barbarians. And then there was this lower tier, bottom tier category. They were the primitives. And the understanding was that humans evolved from primitive to barbarian to modern. But simultaneously, and, and so people understood evolution as teleological and you started at the bottom and you arrived at the top, right? Evolution wasn't understood to be something that happens in fits and bursts. There was no understanding that you could um, maybe also devolve and that could still be part of evolution. There was this really strong conviction that just like biological beings evolve, so too do social beings. And it turned out to be extremely racist and classist um, and continues. You can, we'll find another day, another time in this class to talk about um, social Darwinianism and all of the problems it brings. Um, but what I can say to you here is we still do have this sense, even when we try to be really careful, um, and even when we don't use words like primitive, and even when we aren't Gauguin and we're not glorifying the primitive, and 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 um, there are there's one more trope, and I'll get to this too somewhere else in this class because I don't have time today. My advisor in graduate school at Northwestern University read a book and has an, an entire section on anthropological constructs of the nasty versus noble savage artists too did this. There were the savages or the primitives who um, embodied and represented and became symbols for all that was wrong. Um, they were hypersexualized. They were unruly. They were dirty. They were, um, they, they worked as foils for all that was supposed to be good and modern and white 
um, Puritan, for example, European, etc. They, they reinforced morals and value systems in very white Europe by, by existing as counter to, and they, and they were social constructions, right? This is a social construction of the nasty savage, but there were also social constructions of the noble savage. And this is what Gauguin really did. This was the sense that, you know what, modernity was corrupt, it was impure, it was too chaotic, and so the fix was to get back to the primitive. Um, and here again, this gives me, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in thinking across the arts and sciences, I'm kind of moving back and forth between the projects of scientists and the projects of artists. So if the project of Gauguin was, I need to get, I need to escape all that is wrong with modernity and I'm going to do that by going to Tahiti. Um, the project of early anthropologists was modernity is too complex. It's too hard to understand. We can't study contemporary religion among the moderns because where would we begin? How can we even start to make sense out of it? So what we're going to do is we are going to study religion as it belongs to the primitive peoples, as it is practiced by the quote-unquote primitive peoples, and that's understandable because that's early, that's proto. Those are the kinds of religions that grow up to be modern religion. And, and the end goal of early social scientists was not, we want to better understand these exotic others because this is just about best understanding the world and, and the complexity that is humanity, etc. The end goal was, we want to study these early institutions in these primitive forms so that we can arrive someday at an understanding of our own way too complex to be understood right now institutions and societal structures. And so that was tremendously ethnocentric. All right, let me stop there. You guys, I promised I would hit stop on this and I clearly didn't. I've got a lot more to say to you, um, but I will find places elsewhere. I've got a lot on art and ethics that you guys asked. I'll find places to fit this into the semester. I keep needing to tell myself, I have all semester to talk to you guys and to talk with you and to be in conversation with you. So keep asking me questions, push back. Thank you for being here and have a really good week. Um, I'm gonna get better at these, I promise. They're gonna get tighter, I promise. Take care, ciao.